Amen. Amen. Well, I just made a lot of very uh, happy young uh, members of our church and maybe some, <laughs> in about 20 minutes, some frustrated parents, but we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. And I'm sorry, choir, I don't have any M&Ms for, I know, next time. <laughs> next time. Now we turn to uh, the word of the Lord, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 to 6, and I invite you to, to open your, your Bible to that passage. Uh, we're continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, we, we began with the beginning of the sermon, looking at all of the Beatitudes, uh, the, the first 12 verses there, and looking at the eight Beatitudes. This week and next week, we're going to break those in, in two parts, and we'll look at the first part today. Reading now from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 5, verse 3 to 6. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It was the Indian philosopher and statesman Sarapalli Radhakrishnan who famously once said, Christians are ordinary people making extraordinary claims. In particular, Christians are ordinary people making extraordinary claims about Jesus of Nazareth. We do it all the time in worship. We just said together a few moments ago, Christ has redeemed us by his blood. That's an extraordinary statement on our part. We do it every time we recite the Apostles' Creed. The third day, Jesus rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Extraordinary claims. Christians are ordinary people making extraordinary claims about the carpenter turned rabbi turned provocateur from Galilee. But I think we can turn it around and say Christians are ordinary people about whom Jesus makes extraordinary claims. Christians are ordinary people about whom the spirit-conceived, virgin-born, miracle-working, sin-forgiving, demon-defeating, crucified, risen, reigning, and coming again, Lord, makes extraordinary claims. And four of these claims I just read to you, and we read together. So let's go to him now in prayer as we begin our message. Oh, Lord God, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, for grabbing a hold of the heart of your disciple, Matthew. You grabbed a hold of his heart, Lord, 2,000 years ago, and he wrote down these words. And Lord, I pray that in your mercy and grace and by your Holy Spirit, you'd grab a hold of our heart. You'd speak to us now. Lord God, in the simple words that I prepared this morning, I pray that you would infuse them with your power, that we would do a good work in this hour between ourselves and you, Lord, and leave this place changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's explore the Beatitudes in, in two categories. This morning, the first category, 
first category has to do with our relationship between ourselves and God. So those are the, the four Beatitudes that I just read. Beatitudes 5 through 8 that we'll look at next week have to do with our relationship with one another. So Jesus, the, the master preacher, puts together a pretty uh, concise sermon right here at the beginning. It's our vertical relationship between us and God, and then the second four between relationships with one another, which we'll look at next week. Jesus makes extraordinary claims about born-again disciples who've been and are being shaped into Christ-like ones. Not as a reward we've earned, not, not for being good enough, because we could never be good enough to measure up to God's holy, perfect standard, but blessed by a gift of God's grace. Jesus will make this claim that if you are a disciple of Christ, you are favored by God. That's extraordinary. Again, these first verses describe our relationship with God. In fact, if you look at the entire Sermon on the Mount, and I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I encouraged you last week to read the whole sermon. It would only take you 20 minutes. If you read the entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus won't talk about how to become a Christian in any verse in that entire sermon. He will only discuss and point out and illustrate the works of and spiritual fruit and character and attitudes that nobody can honestly know or experience unless you're already a Christian living in a state of grace. That was a mouthful, so let me, let me say it again. In the entire sermon, not once will Jesus say, this is how you become a Christian. He's only describing, pointing out, and illustrating what Christians look like what disciples already are living in a state of grace. And so imagine Jesus, the rabbi, is up on that mountain. He's up on that hillside with his disciples. He's talking to his disciples. But the crowds come in, listening, in shock and awe by God's unreachable standards, while at the same time they're being wooed by God's matchless love. Do you know this day how much you are loved? Do you know how much your God loves you? Jeremiah 31, verse 3. God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Your heavenly Father calls you beloved. It's the same title he gave his son at his baptism. He says, you are my beloved. You were made in my image, and I love you. Your picture is in my wallet, God says to you. Your picture is on his refrigerator. If God were to have a fridge, if you could imagine that, that's how much he loves you. Do you have any idea how much your identity is worth on the open market today? Any idea? Your identity is worth less than one-tenth of a cent on the open market. I researched that this week. That's how much an ad man is willing to pay to buy your identity so that he or she can track you and try to sell you things and promise you things that are extraordinary. And says, you know what? Your identity is worth less than one-tenth of a cent. How much does God say that you are worth? 
He says, you are priceless. Priceless. And Jesus says, brothers and sisters, you are blessed. Blessed, blessed. He says it eight times to make it clear, you are blessed. And then he says, and this life, this brief opportunity we have on planet Earth affords us just a little time to say to God, I love you too. That's what this sermon's all about. How we can make these few years that we have on this planet worthwhile enough so we can say, Father, I love you too. Now let's look at the first beatitude. Look with me at verse 3. I'm going to encourage you uh, to continue to open your Bibles. Let's keep them open. Look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the phrase born, uh, poor in spirit is extremely important here. Jesus isn't talking about economic poverty, although he does address economic poverty in other places, but not here. Remember that the first four Beatitudes are about our relationship with God. That's the key. What he's saying is disciples have become aware of their spiritual poverty. Kids, if you're filling in the blank for the kids' questions, listen closely. Being poor in spirit is to acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy before God. Our spiritual bankruptcy, B-A-N-K-R-U-P-T-C-Y. We are bankrupt before God. When you are poor in spirit, you say, I am broke. I deserve God's wrath. I have nothing to buy my way out of this mess. I could call my family and my friends and none of us could come up with enough money to buy me out of this hole. I am a sinner. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. When you drop the act, when you get real with yourself and your maker, and you cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's when you come to the end of yourself Stop living in denial that, that you've got a real serious problem. Then Jesus says, then you are poor in spirit, and then you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. He says the kingdom of heaven will be yours. He will justify you. He will pay your fine. And when we take honest stock of our life, what happens next? Look at the progression. What happens next after we get real with God? We begin to mourn over our sin. Verse 4, that's the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, people mourn for many reasons. Pain, loss of a loved one. But in this context, there's a different mourning in view. People who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy then begin to lament the consequences of their sin. I'll tell you a short story about someone in my life that I'll, I'll call David. David was a leader in his church, well-respected, well-loved. But David had a secret problem that no one knew about. David was a gambler, and it became an addiction. 
And David began to ask for help from his friends by asking for money and small loans here and there. No one knew about it. Then one day, David and I went out to lunch. I took him out to check in and hear how the ministry was going and how his life and just catching up. And he said, you know what? I'm on my way to see a friend who's in need. Pete, could I borrow some money? I didn't think anything of it. We stopped at the Wells Fargo ATM. I took $40 out. I said, is that enough? He said, yeah, that, that should do. I'll tie him over. Gave him that money. And like all of David's friends, I never saw it again. You know what happened when, when word got out what, what David was up to? He was incredibly embarrassed. And when I went to see him, the, the first thing he was able to communicate and with me and others is, I, I'm just embarrassed that I got caught. <laughs> he was sorry that he was caught. And then he was sorry that every, everyone was angry at him. But that wasn't the real mourning that God's calling for here because eventually David came around to realize that he had sinned and that he had grieved God. And it was in that moment when his apology wasn't directed at being embarrassed, which is really about himself. He said, how could I do this to my people and to my Lord? Romans 7 epitomizes this kind of, of mourning where the Apostle Paul says, I do that which I don't want to do, and the thing that I really want to do, I, I should do, I don't do. Do you, do you know this one? And then he says in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This mourning is the loss of innocence. And it's a mourning not only the loss of our own innocence, it's the innocence around us. We, Christians, our hearts are broken for the, the brokenness of the world around us. I turned on the news yesterday and, and, and they were talking about that, uh, that uh, congresswoman from Arizona who was gunned down and a judge of 40 years gunned down and all those people injured lives completely ruined. My heart broke for them and for their loved ones and for the survivors. And my heart broke for that young, sick man who pulled the trigger. And God promises that we will be comforted. How could this happen, Lord? How could I do this? How could they do this? That's what Jesus has in mind here. Real contrition leads to real comfort. And that's why we confess our sins each week together. Each Sunday we confess our sins. We're assured of our pardon each and every week. But let me ask you something. Does your heart break for the lost? Does your heart break? When you heard that news, did you stop what you were doing and, and pray? When, when you hear an ambulance, do you just stop and say, Oh, Lord. The brokenness and pain of this world. Forgive us, Father. And that leads to our, our third beatitude. Verse 5, look there with me. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So number one, you, you, you've looked in the mirror, you've taken stock of your life, and you've asked God to make you right, to justify you. And secondly, then you, you grieve over your past and your daily setbacks. And your heart is broken for the world. But, but once you wipe your eyes and you take a deep breath, you're ready to face that world again. 
and something has changed. Your pride is gone. You are now comfortable in your own skin, knowing that God loves you now more than he ever has loved you before or ever will love you. He's loving you with a perfect love, just the way you are. And that love is available to everyone. And so you go about your day with a confidence and a gentle attitude and a Christ-likeness in a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of way. And so you, Jesus says, have inherited the earth. You are really living. Do you want to live the way of Jesus? Then you want to be meek. Well, someone will say, well, meek equals weak, and I'm, I'm not interested in being weak. Far from it. Because in actuality, people who are meek and humble like Jesus with that Christ-like attitude, actually are very, very strong. And that's a very attractive quality in a person, to have that inner strength, being comfortable in your own skin. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, my disciples are not arrogant. They're not misogynistic. They're not bossy. They're not egotistical. They're never rude, condescending, self-righteous, self-centered, conceited, or disrespectful. My disciples, they don't hold grudges. They keep no record of wrong. There is no air of superiority. Friends, does that describe you? It hardly describes me all the time. So we back up a step. We mourn over the fact that, wow, I can really be full of myself, can I? Forgive me, Lord. Weed that out of me, Father, right now. Because I want to be meek. I want to inherit the earth. I, I want to be attractive to other people in this Christ-honoring way, not a selfish, self-glorifying way. A meek disciple is truly amazed that God thinks well of him. Finally, verse 6, the fourth beatitude. Say it with me. If you had your Bibles open, say it with me. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Satisfied. Merrily shared Psalm 63 at our session meeting. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Let me ask you these closing questions. Are you poor in spirit? Have you acknowledged you're totally broke, that you are underwater without Jesus' credit? Does your heart break over the mess all around you and the mess still left inside of you? Are you meek and gentle toward other people, knowing that you are sinners saved by grace? You're not surprised when someone sins against you because, well, they're a sinner just like me. And do you have an insatiable appetite for all that pleases God? I, I ask because according to Jesus, if you answer yes, then he makes the extraordinary claim, you are blessed. 
But if you answered no, or I don't know, then he's saying to you right now where you are sitting, trust in me. My Father has made your soul so huge, the whole world could never satisfy you. He's saying, come. Come to me. Believe in me. That claim is extraordinary. Amen? Amen. Amen. Friends, let's stand together. Let's sing to our Lord. Oh, Lord, you are beautiful.